Chapter 15 of The First Men in the Moon by H.G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Chapter 15 The Giddy Bridge. Just for a moment, that hostile pause endured. I suppose that both we and the Selenites did some very rapid thinking. My clearest impression was that there was nothing to put my back against and that we were bound to be surrounded and killed. The overwhelming folly of our presence there loomed over me in black, enormous reproach. Why had I ever launched myself on this mad and human expedition? Cavour came to my side and laid his hand on my arm. His pale and terrified face was ghastly in the blue light. We can't do anything, he said. It's a mistake. They don't understand. We must go as they want us to go. I looked down at him, and then at the fresh selenites who were coming to help their fellows. If I had my hands free... It's no use, he panted. No, we'll go. And he turned about and led the way in the direction that had been indicated for us. I followed, trying to look as subdued as possible and feeling at the chains about my wrists. My blood was boiling. I noted nothing more of that cavern, though it seemed to take a long time before we had marched across it, or if I noted anything, I forgot it as I saw it. My thoughts were concentrated, I think, upon my chains and the selenites, and particularly upon the helmeted ones with the goads. At first they marched parallel with us, and at a respectful distance, but presently they were overtaken by three others, and then they drew nearer, until they were within arm's length again. I winced like a beaten horse as they came near to us. The shorter, thicker selenite marched at first on our right flank, but presently came in front of us again. How well the picture of that grouping has bitten into my brain. The back of Cavour's downcast head just in front of me, and the dejected droop of his shoulders, and our guide's gaping visage perpetually jerking about him, and the go-bearers on either side, watchful yet open-mouthed, a blue monochrome. And after all, I do remember one other thing besides the purely personal affair, which is that a sort of gutter came presently across the floor of the cavern and then ran along by the side of the path of rock we followed. And it was full of the same bright blue luminous stuff that flowed out of the great machine. I walked close beside it, and I can testify it radiated not a particle of heat. It was brightly shining and yet it was neither warmer nor colder than anything else in the cavern. Clang, clang, clang. We passed right under the thumping levers of another vast machine, and so came at last to a wide tunnel in which we could even hear the pad, pad of our shoeless feet, and which, save for the trickling thread of blue to the right of us, was quite unlit. The shadows made gigantic travesties of our shapes, and those of the selenites on the irregular wall and roof of the tunnel. Ever and again crystals in the walls of the tunnel scintillated like gems. Ever and again the tunnel expanded into a stalactitic cavern, or gave off branches that vanished into darkness. We seemed to be marching down that tunnel for a long time. Trickle, trickle, went the flowing light very softly, and our footfalls and their echoes made an irregular paddle, paddle. My mind settled down to the question of my chains. If I were to slip off one turn so, 
and then to twist it so, if I tried to do it very gradually, would they see I was slipping my wrist out of the looser turn? If they did, what would they do? Bedford, said Cavour, it goes down. It keeps on going down. His remark roused me from my sullen preoccupation. If they wanted to kill us, he said, dropping back to come level with me, there is no reason why they should not have done it. No, I admitted. That's true. They don't understand us, he said. They think we are merely strange animals, some wild sort of mooncalf birth, perhaps. It will be only when they have observed us better that they will begin to think we have minds. When you trace those geometrical problems, said I, it may be that. We tramped on for a space. You see, said Cavour, these may be selenites of a lower class. The infernal fools, said I viciously, glancing at their exasperating faces. If we endure what they do to us, we've got to endure it, said I. There may be others less stupid. This is the mere outer fringe of their world. It must go down and down, cavern passage tunnel down at last to the sea, hundreds of miles below. His words made me think of the mile or so of rock and tunnel that might be over our heads already. It was like a weight dropping on my shoulders. Away from the sun and air, I said. Even a mine half a mile deep is stuffy. This is not, anyhow. It's probable. Ventilation. The air would blow from the dark side of the moon to the sunlit, and all the carbonic acid would well out there and feed those plants. Up this tunnel, for example, there is quite a breeze. And what a world it must be. The earnest we have in that shaft and those machines. And the goad, I said. Don't forget the goad. He walked a little in front of me for a time. Even that goad, he said. Well, I was angry at the time, but it was perhaps necessary we should get on. They have different skins and probably different nerves. They may not understand our objection, just as a being from Mars might not like our earthly habit of nudging. They'd better be careful how they nudge me. And about that geometry. After all, their way is a way of understanding, too. They begin with the elements of life and not of thought. Food, compulsion, pain. They strike at fundamentals. There's no doubt about that, I said. He went on to talk of the enormous and wonderful world into which we were being taken. I realised slowly from his tone that even now he was not absolutely in despair at the prospect of going ever deeper into this inhuman planet burrow. His mind ran on machines and invention, to the exclusion of a thousand dark things that beset me. It wasn't that he intended to make any use of these things, he simply wanted to know them. After all, he said, this is a tremendous occasion. It is the meeting of two worlds. What are we going to see? Think of what is below us here. We shan't see much if the light isn't better, I remarked. This is only the outer crust. Down below, on this scale, there will be everything. Do you notice how different they seem, one from another? The story we shall take back. Some rare sort of animal, I said, might comfort himself in that way while they were bringing him to the zoo. It doesn't follow that we are going to be shown all these things. When they find we have reasonable minds, said Cavour, they will want to learn about the earth. 
Even if they have no generous emotions, they will teach in order to learn, and the things they must know, the unanticipated things. He went on to speculate on the possibility of their knowing things he had never hoped to learn on earth, speculating in that way with a raw wound from that goad already in his skin. Much that he said, I forget, for my attention was drawn to the fact that the tunnel along which we had been marching was opening out wider and wider. We seemed, from the feeling of the air, to be going out into a huge space. But how big the space might really be, we could not tell, because it was unlit. Our little stream of light ran in a dwindling thread and vanished far ahead. Presently the rocky walls had vanished altogether on either hand. There was nothing to be seen but the path in front of us and the trickling, hurrying rivulet of blue phosphorescence. The figures of Cavour and the guiding selenite marched before me, the sides of their legs and heads that were towards the rivulet were clear and bright blue. Their darkened sides, now that the reflection of the tunnel wall no longer lit them, merged indistinguishably in the darkness beyond. And soon I perceived that we were approaching a declivity of some sort, because the little blue stream dipped suddenly out of sight. In another moment, as it seemed, we had reached the edge. The shining stream gave one meander of hesitation and then rushed over. It fell to a depth at which the sound of its descent was absolutely lost to us. Far below was a bluish glow, a sort of blue mist at an infinite distance below, and the darkness the stream dropped out of became utterly void and black, save that a thing like a plank projected from the edge of the cliff and stretched out and faded and vanished altogether. There was a warm air blowing up out of the gulf. For a moment... I and Cavour stood as near the edge as we dared, peering into a blue-tinged profundity, and then our guide was pulling at my arm. Then he left me and walked to the end of that plank and stepped upon it, looking back. Then when he perceived we watched him, he turned about and went along it, walking as surely as though he was on firm earth. For a moment his form was distinct. Then he became a blue blur and then vanished into the obscurity. I became aware of some vague shape looming darkly out of the black. There was a pause. Surely, said Cavour. One of the other Selenites walked a few paces out upon the plank and turned and looked back at us unconcernedly. The others stood ready to follow after us. Our guide's expectant figure reappeared. He was returning to see why we had not advanced. What is that beyond there? I asked. I can't see. We can't cross this at any price, said I. I could not go three steps on it, said Cavour, even with my hands free. We looked at each other's drawn faces in blank consternation. They can't know what it is to be giddy, said Cavour. It's quite impossible for us to walk that plank. I don't believe they see as we do. I've been watching them. I wonder if they know this is simply blackness for us. How can we make them understand? Anyhow, we must make them understand. I think we said these things with a vague half-hope the Selenites might somehow understand. I knew quite clearly that all that was needed was an explanation. Then, as I saw their faces, I realised that an explanation was impossible. Just here it was that our resemblances were not going to bridge our differences. Well, I wasn't going to walk the plank, anyhow. 
I slipped my wrist very quickly out of the coil of chain that was loose, and then began to twist my wrist in opposite directions. I was standing nearest to the bridge, and as I did this, two of the Selenites laid hold of me and pulled me gently towards it. I shook my head violently. No go, I said. No use. You don't understand. Another Selenite added his compulsion. I was forced to step forward. I've got an idea, said Cavour, but I knew his ideas. Look here, I exclaimed to the Selenites. Steady on. It's all very well for you. I sprang round upon my heel. I burst out into curses, for one of the armed Selenites had stabbed me behind with his goad. I wrenched my wrists free from the little tentacles that held them. I turned on the goad-bearer. Confound you, I cried. I've warned you of that. What on earth do you think I'm made of, to stick that into me? If you touch me again, by way of answer, he pricked me forthwith. I heard Cavour's voice in alarm and entreaty. Even then I think he wanted to compromise with these creatures. I say, Bedford, he cried, I know a way. But the sting of that second stab seemed to set free some pent-up reserve of energy in my being. Instantly the link of the wrist chain snapped, and with it snapped all considerations that had held us unresisting in the hands of these moon creatures. For that second, at least, I was mad with fear and anger. I took no thought of consequences. I hit straight out at the face of the thing with the goad. The chain was twisted round my fist. There came another of these beastly surprises of which the moon world is full. My mailed hand seemed to go clean through him. He smashed like, like some softish sort of sweet with liquid in it. He broke right in. He squelched and splashed. It was like hitting a damp toadstool. The flimsy body went spinning a dozen yards and fell with a flabby impact. I was astonished. I was incredulous that any living thing could be so flimsy. For an instant I could have believed the whole thing a dream. Then it had become real and imminent again. Neither Cavour nor the other Selenite seemed to have done anything from the time when I had turned about to the time when the dead Selenite hit the ground. Everyone stood back from us too, everyone alert. That arrest seemed to last at least a second after the Selenite was down. Everyone must have been taking the thing in. I seemed to remember myself standing with my arm half retracted, trying also to take it in. What next? clamoured my brain. What next? Then, in a moment, everyone was moving. I perceived we must get our chains loose and that before we could do this, these Selenites had to be beaten off. I faced towards the group of these three goad-bearers. Instantly one threw his goad at me. It swished over my head, and I suppose went flying into the abyss behind. I leapt right at him with all my might as the goad flew over me. He turned to run as I jumped, and I bore him to the ground, came down right upon him, and slipped upon his smashed body and fell. He seemed to wriggle under my foot. I came into a sitting position, and on every hand the blue backs of the Selenites were receding into the darkness. I bent a link by main force and untwisted the chain that had hampered me about the ankles and sprang to my feet with the chain in my hand. Another goad, flung javelin-wise, whistled by me, and I made a rush towards the darkness out of which it had come. Then I turned back towards Cavour, who was still standing in the light of the rivulet near the gulf 
convulsively busy with his wrists, and at the same time jabbering nonsense about his idea. "'Come on!' I cried. "'My hands!' he answered. Then, realising that I dared not run back to him, because my ill-calculated steps might carry me over the edge, he came shuffling towards me, with his hands held out before him. I gripped his chains at once to unfasten them. "'Where are they?' he panted. "'Run away. They'll come back. They're throwing things. Which way shall we go?' By the light, to that tunnel, eh? Yes, said I, and his hands were free. I dropped on my knees and fell to work on his ankle bonds. Whack came something, I know not what, and splashed their livid streamlet into drops about us. Far away on our right a piping and whistling began. I whipped the chain off his feet and put it in his hand. Hit with that, I said, and without waiting for an answer, set off in big bounds along the path by which we had come. I had a nasty sort of feeling that these things could jump out of the darkness onto my back. I heard the impact of his leaps come following after me. We ran in vast strides, but that running, you must understand, was an altogether different thing from any running on earth. On earth one leaps and almost instantly hits the ground again, but on the moon, because of its weaker pull, one shot through the air for several seconds before one came to earth. In spite of our violent hurry, this gave an effect of long pauses, pauses in which one might have counted seven or eight. Step, and one soared off. All sorts of questions ran through my mind. Where are the Selenites? What would they do? Shall we ever get to that tunnel? Is Kavor far behind? Are they likely to cut him off? Then whack, stride, and off again for another step. I saw a selenite running in front of me, his legs going exactly as a man's would go on earth, saw him glance over his shoulder, and heard him shriek as he ran aside out of my way into the darkness. He was, I think, our guide, but I'm not sure. Then in another vast stride, the walls of the rock had come into view on either hand, and in two more strides, I was in the tunnel and tempering my pace to its low roof. I went on to a bend, then stopped and turned back, and plug, 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 Cavour came into view, splashing into the stream of blue light at every stride, and grew larger and blundered into me. We stood clutching each other. For a moment, at least, we had shaken off our captors and were alone. We were both very much out of breath. We spoke in panting, broken sentences. You've spoiled it all, panted Cavour. Nonsense, I cried. It was that or death. What are we to do? Hide. How can we? It's dark enough. But where? Up one of these side cabins. And then? Think. Right, come on. We strode on and presently came to a radiating dark cavern. Cavour was in front. He hesitated and chose a black mouth that seemed to promise good hiding. He went towards it and turned. It's dark, he said. Your legs and feet will light us. You're wet with that luminous stuff. But... A tumult of sounds, and in particular a sound like a clanging gong, advancing up the main tunnel became audible. It was horribly suggestive of a tumultuous pursuit. We made a bolt for the unlit side cavern forthwith. As we ran along it, our way was lit by the irradiation of Cavour's legs. It's lucky, I panted, they took off our boots, or we should fill this place with clatter. On we rushed, 
taking as small steps as we could to avoid striking the roof of the cavern. After a time, we seemed to be gaining on the uproar. It became muffled. It dwindled. It died away. I stopped and looked back, and I heard the pad of Cavour's feet receding. Then he stopped also. Bedford, he whispered. There's a sort of light in front of us. I looked, and at first I could see nothing. Then I perceived his head and shoulders dimly outlined against a fainter darkness. I saw also that this mitigation of the darkness was not blue, as all the other light within the moon had been, but a pallid grey, a very vague, faint white, the daylight colour. Cavour noted this difference as soon or sooner than I did, and I think, too, that it filled him with much the same wild hope. Bedford, he whispered, and his voice trembled. That light, it is possible. He did not dare to say the thing he hoped. Then came a pause. Suddenly I knew by the sound of his feet that he was striding towards that pallor. I followed him with a beating heart. End of chapter 15